Chapter Eleven, Part Two of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Cheyennes numbered about two hundred. Nearly all the young men in the village went. Little Raven's son was one of the four Arapahoes. When the party reached the Saline, they turned down the stream with the exception of twenty, who, being fearful of depredations being committed against the whites by the party going in the direction of the settlements, kept on north toward the Pawnees. The main party continued down the Saline until they came in sight of the settlement. They then camped there. A Cheyenne named Oeamoea, a brother of White Antelope, who was killed at Sand Creek, and another named Red Nose, proceeded to the first house. They afterwards returned to the camp, and with them a woman captive. The main party was surprised at this action, and forcibly took possession of her and returned her to her house. The two Indians had outraged the woman before they brought her to the camp. After the outrage had been committed, the parties left the Saline and went north towards the settlement at the South Fork of the Solomon, where they were kindly received and fed by the white people. They left the settlements on the South Fork and proceeded toward the settlements of the North Fork. When in sight of these settlements, they came upon a body of armed settlers who fired upon them. They avoided the party, went around them, and approached a house some distance off. In the vicinity of the house, they came upon a white man alone on the prairie. Big Head's son rode at him and knocked him down with a club. The Indian who had committed the outrage upon the white woman, known as White Antelope's brother, then fired upon the white man without effect, while the third Indian rode up and killed him. Soon after, they killed a white man and close by a woman, all in the same settlement. At this time the people were killed, the party was divided in feeling, the majority being opposed to any outrages being committed, but finding it useless to contend against those outrages being committed without bringing on a strife among themselves. They gave way, and all went in together. Then they went to another house in the same settlement, and there killed two men and took two little girls prisoners, this on the same day. After committing this last outrage, the party turned south toward the Saline, where they came upon a body of mounted troops. The troops immediately charged the Indians, and the pursuit was continued a long time. The Indians, having the two children, their horses becoming fatigued, dropped the children without hurting them. Soon after the children were dropped, the pursuit ceased, but the Indians continued up on the Saline. A portion of the Indians afterwards returned to look for the children, but they were unable to find them. After they had proceeded some distance up the Saline, the party divided, the majority going north towards the settlements on the Solomon, but thirty of them started toward their village, supposed to be some distance northwest of Fort Larned. Another small party returned to Black Kettle Village, from which party I got this information. I am fearful that before this time the party that started north had committed a great many depredations. Question by Colonel Winecoop. Do you know the names of the principal men of this party that committed the depredations, besides White Antelope's brother? Answer by Little Rock. There were Medicine Arrow's oldest son, named Tall Wolf, Red Nose, who was one of the men who outraged the woman, 
Big Head's son, named Porcupine Bear, and Sandhill's brother, known as the Bear that Goes Ahead. Questioned by Colonel Weinkoop. You told me the nations want peace. Will you, in accordance with your treaty stipulations, deliver up the men whom you have named as being the leaders of the party who committed the outrages named? Answer by Little Rock. I think that the only men who ought to suffer and be responsible for these outrages are White Antelope's brother and Red Nose, the men who ravished the woman. And when I return to the Cheyenne camp to assemble the chiefs and headmen, I think those two men will be delivered upon you. Question by Colonel Winecoop. I consider the whole party guilty, but it being impossible to punish all of them, I hold the principal men whom you mentioned responsible for all. They had no right to be led and governed by two men. If no depredations had been committed after the outrage on the woman, the two men whom you had mentioned alone would have been guilty. Answer by Little Rock. After your explanation, I think you demand for the men is right. I am willing to deliver them up and will go back to the tribe and use my best endeavors to have them surrendered. I am but one man, and cannot answer for the entire nation. Other questions and answers of similar import followed. The terms of the interview between Colonel Winecoop and Little Rock were carefully noted down and transmitted regularly to his next superior officer, Superintendent Murphy, who, but a few days previous, and within the same month, had officially reported to the Indian Commissioner at Washington that peace and good will will reign undisturbed between the Indians under his charge and the whites. Even he, with a strong leaning towards the adoption of morbid measures of a peaceful character, and his disinclination to believe the Indians could meditate evil towards their white neighbors, was forced, as his next letter shows, to alter his views. Office Superintendent, Indian Affairs, Atchison, Kansas, August twenty-second, 1868. Sir, I have the honor herewith to transmit a letter of the 19th instituted from Agent Winecoop, enclosing report of a talk which he had with Little Rock, a Cheyenne chief, whom he had sent to ascertain the facts relative to the recent troubles on the Solomon and Saline rivers in this state. The agent's letter and report are full and explain themselves. I fully concur in the views expressed by the agent that the innocent Indians who are trying to keep in good faith their treaty pledges be protected in the manner indicated by him, while I earnestly recommended that the Indians who have committed these gross outrages be turned over to the military, and that they be severely punished. When I reflect that at the very time these Indians were making such loud professions of friendship at Larned, receiving their annuities, and so on, they were then contemplating and planning this campaign. I can no longer have confidence in what they say or promise. War is surely upon us. And in view of the importance of the case, I earnestly recommend that Agent Winecoop be furnished promptly with the views of the department and the full instructions be given him for his further action. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, Thomas Murphy, Superintendent, Indian Affairs, Honorable C. E. Mix, Acting Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Washington, D.C. 
What were the recommendations of Agent Winecoop referred to in Mr. Murphy's letter? They were as follows. Let me take those Indians whom I know to be guiltless and desirous of remaining at peace, and locate them with their lodges and families at some good place that I may select in the vicinity of this post, Larned and let these Indians be entirely subsisted by the government until this trouble is over, and be kept within certain bounds, and let me be furnished with a small battalion of United States troops for the purpose of protecting them from their own people, and from being forced by them into war. Let those who refuse to respond to my call and come within the bounds prescribed be considered at war, and let them be properly punished. By this means, if war takes place, which I consider inevitable, we can be able to discriminate between those who deserve punishment and those who do not. Otherwise, it will be a matter of impossibility. This proposition seems, from its wording, to be not only a feasible one, but based on the principles of justice to all concerned, and no doubt would be so interpreted by the theorizers of the Indian question who study its merits from afar. Before acting upon Colonel Winecoop's plan, it was in the regular order referred to General Sherman, at that time commanding the military division of the Missouri, in which the Indians referred to were located. His endorsement in reply briefly disposed of the proposition by exposing its absurdity. Headquarters Military Division of the Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, September 19, 1868. I now regard the Cheyennes and Arapahoes at war, and that it will be impossible for our troops to discriminate between the well-disposed and the warlike parts of these bands, unless an absolute separation be made. I prefer that the agents collect all of the former and conduct them to their reservation within the Indian Territory south of the Kansas, there to be provided for under the supervision, say, about Old Fort Cobb. I cannot consent to their being collected and held near Fort Larned. So long as Agent Winecoop remains at Fort Larned, the vagabond part of the Indians will cluster around him for support and beg of the military. The vital part of these tribes are committing murders and robberies from Kansas to Colorado, and it is an excess of generosity on our part to be feeding and supplying the old, young, and feeble while their young men are at war. I do not pretend to say what should be done with these, but it will simplify our game of war, already complicated enough, by removing them well away from our field of operations. I have the honor to be your obedient servant, W.T. Sherman, Lieutenant General, Commanding. Again on the 26th of the same month, General Sherman, in a letter to General Schofield and the Secretary of War, writes, The annuity goods for these Indians, Kiowas, Comanches, should be sent to Fort Cobb, and the Indian agent for these Indians should go there at once and if the Secretary of the Interior has any contingent fun out of which he could provide food, or if he could use as a part of the regular appropriation for food instead of clothing, it may keep these Indians from joining the hostile Cheyennes and Arapahoes. The latter should receive nothing, and now that they are at war, I propose to give them enough of it to satisfy them to their heart's content. 
and General Sheridan will not relax until his efforts, till the winter will put them at our mercy. He reports that he can already account for about seventy dead Indians, and his forces are right in among these hostile Indians on the upper Republican, and on the head of the Canadian south of Fort Dodge. Still another letter from General Sherman to the Secretary of War argues the case as follows. All Cheyennes and Arapahoes are now at war. Admitting that some of them have not done acts of murder, rape, and so on, still they have not restrained those who have, nor have they on demand given up the criminals as they agreed to do. The treaty made at Medicine Lodge is therefore already broken by them, and the War Department should ask the concurrence of the Indian Department or invoke the superior orders of the President against any goods whatsoever, even clothing, going to any part of the tribes named until this matter is settled. As military commander, I have the right, unless restrained by superior orders, to prevent the issue of any goods whatsoever to Indians outside of these reservations, and if the agency for the Cheyennes and Arapahoes be established at or near Fort Cobb, the agent should, if possible, be able to provide for and feed such as may go there for their own volition, or who may be driven there by our military movements. I have dispatched General Hazen to the frontier with a limited amount of money wherewith to aid the said agents to provide for the peaceful parts of those tribes this winter, while en route to and after their arrival at their new homes, no better time could be possibly chosen than the present for destroying or humiliating those bands that have so outrageously violated their treaties and begun a devastating war without one particle of provocation, and after a reasonable time given for the innocent to withdraw, I will solicit an order from the President declaring all Indians who remain outside of their lawful reservations to be outlaws, and commanding all people, soldiers, and citizens to proceed against them as such. We have never heretofore been in a condition to adopt this course, because until now we could not clearly point out to these Indians where they may rightfully go to escape the consequences of hostile acts of their fellows. The right to hunt buffaloes secured by the treaties could also be regulated so as to require all parties desiring to hunt to procure from the agent a permit, which permit should be endorsed by the commanding officer of the nearest military post. But I think this treaty having been clearly violated by the Indians themselves, this hunting right is entirely lost to them, if we so declare it. The foregoing extracts from the letter and official correspondence which passes between high dignitaries of the government, who were supposed to not only be thoroughly conversant with the Indian affairs, but to represent the civil and military phase of the question, will, when read in connection with the statements of the superintendent and agents of the Indians, and that the chief Little Rock gave the reader some idea of the origin and character of the difficulties between the whites and Indians in the summer and fall of 1868, tabulated list of depredations by the Indians accompanying the chapter description of General Forsyth's campaign, will give more extended information in a condensed form. 
While Forsyth was moving his detachment of scouts through the valleys of the Republican in the northwestern portion of Kansas, General Sheridan had also arranged to have a well-equipped force operating south of the Arkansas River, and in this way to cause the two favorite haunts of the Indians to be overrun simultaneously, and thus prevent them, when driven from one haunt, from fleeing in safety and unmolested to another. The expedition, intended to operate south of the Arkansas, was comprised of the principal portion of the 7th Cavalry and a few companies of the 3rd Regular Infantry, the entire force under the command of Brigadier General Alfred Sully, an officer of long experience among the Indians, and one who had in times gone by achieved no little distinction as an Indian fighter, and at a later date became a partial advocate of the adoption of the peace policy. General Sully's expedition, after being thoroughly equipped and supplied, under his personal supervision, with everything needed in a campaign such as what was to be undertaken, crossed the Arkansas River about the 1st of September at Fort Dodge, and, marching a little west of south, struck the Cimarron River, where they first encountered Indians. From Cimarron, the troops moved in a southeasterly direction, one day's march to Beaver Creek, the savages opposing and fighting them during the entire day. That night, the Indians came close enough to fire into the camp, an unusual proceeding in Indian warfare, as they rarely molest troops during the hours of night. The next day, General Sully directed his march down the Valley of the Beaver, but just as his troops were breaking camp, the long wagon train having already pulled out, and the rear guard of the troops having barely got into their saddles, a party of between two and three hundred warriors, who had evidently, in some inexplicable manner, contrived to conceal their approach until the proper moment, dashed into the deserted camp within a few yards of the rear of the troops, and succeeded in cutting off a few led horses, and two cavalrymen who, as is so often the case, had lingered a moment behind the column. General Sully and staff were at that moment near the head of the column, a mile or more from camp. The general, as was his custom on the march, being comfortably stowed away in his ambulance. Of course it was impossible that he or his staff, from their great distance from the scene of the actual attack, could give the necessary orders in the case. Fortunately, the acting adjutant of the cavalry, Brevet Captain A. E. Smith, was riding at the rear of the column and witnessed the attack of the Indians. Captain Hamilton of the cavalry was also present in command of the rear guard. Wheeling his guard to the right about, he once prepared to charge the Indians and to attempt to rescue the two troopers who were being carried off as prisoners before his very eyes. At the same time, Captain Smith, as representative of the commanding officer of the cavalry, promptly took the responsibility of directing a squadron of cavalry to wheel out of column and advance in support of Captain Hamilton's guard. With this hastily formed detachment, the Indians, still within pistol range but moving off with their prisoners, were gallantly charged and so closely pressed that they were forced to relinquish possession of one of their prisoners but not before shooting him through the body and leaving him on the ground, as they supposed mortally wounded. The troops continued to charge the retreating Indians, upon whom they were gaining, determined if possible to effect the rescue of their remaining comrade. 
They were advancing down one slope while the Indians just across the ravine were endeavoring to escape with their prisoner up the opposite ascent. When a peremptory order reached the officers commanding the pursuing forces to withdraw their men and reform the column at once, delaying only long enough for an ambulance to arrive from the train in which to transport their wounded comrade, the order was obeyed. Upon rejoining the column, the two officers named were summoned before the officer commanding their regiment, and after a second-hand reprimand, were ordered in arrest and their sabers taken from them for leaving the column without orders. The attempted and half-successful rescue of their comrades and the repulse of the Indians to the contrary notwithstanding. Fortunately, wiser and better nature counsels prevailed in a few hours, and the regimental commander was authorized to release the two officers from their brief durance. Their sabers were restored to them, and they became, as deserved, the recipients of numerous complimentary expressions from their brother officers. The terrific fate awaiting the unfortunate trooper carried off by the Indians spread a deep gloom throughout the command. All were too familiar with the horrid customs of the savages to hope for a moment that the captive would be reserved for aught but a slow lingering death from torture, the most horrible and painful which savage bloodthirsty minds could suggest. Such was, in truth, his sad fate, as we learned afterwards when peace was established with the tribes, then engaged in war. Never shall I forget the consummate coolness and particularity of detail with which some of the Indians engaged in the affair related to myself and party, the exact process by which the captured trooper was tortured to death, how he was tied to a stake, strips of flesh cut from his body, arms, and legs, burning brands thrust into the bleeding wounds, the nose, lips, and ears cut off, and finally, when the loss of blood, excessive pain, and anguish, the poor, bleeding, almost senseless mortal fell to the ground exhausted. Younger Indians were permitted to rush in and dispatch him with their knives. The expedition proceeded on down the valley of Beaver Creek, the Indians contesting every step of the way. In the afternoon, about three o'clock, the troops arrived at the ridge of the Sand Hills, a few miles southeast of the present site of Camp Supply, where quite a determined engagement took place with the savages, the three tribes, Cheyennes, Arapahoes, and Kiowas, being the assailants. The Indians seemed to have reserved their strongest efforts until the troops and train had advanced well into the Sand Hills when a most obstinate and well-coordinated resistance was offered to further advancement of the troops. It was evident to many of the officers, and no doubt to the men, that the troops were probably nearing the location of the Indian villages, and that this last display of opposition to their further advance was to save the villages. The character of the country immediately about the troops was not favorable to the operations of a cavalry. The surface of the rolling plain was cut up by irregular and closely located sand hills, too steep and sandy to allow the cavalry to move with freedom, yet capable of being easily cleared of savages by troops fighting on foot. The Indians took post on the hilltops and began harassing fire on the troops and train. Had the infantry been unloaded from the wagons promptly, instead of adding to the great weight and sinking the wheels sometimes almost to the axles, 
and had they with the assistance of a few of the dismounted cavalry been deployed on both sides of the train the latter could have been safely conducted though what was then decided to be impassable sand hills but which were a short time afterward provided to be perfectly practicable and once beyond the range of the sand hills but a short distance the village of the attacking warriors would have been found exposed to an easy and important capture probably terminating the campaign by compelling a satisfactory peace captain yates with his single troop of cavalry was ordered forward to drive the indians away this was a proceeding which did not seem to meet with favor from the savages captain yates could drive them whenever he encountered them but it was only to cause the redskins to appear in increased numbers at some other threatened point after contending in this non-effective manner for a couple of hours the impression arose in the minds of some that the train could not be conducted through the sand hills in the face of the strong opposition offered by the indians the order was issued to turn about and withdraw this order was executed and the troops and train followed by the exultant indians retired a few miles to the beaver and encamped for the night on the ground now known as camp supply captain yates had caused to be brought off the field when his troop was ordered to retire the body of one of his men who had been slain in the fight by the indians as the troops were to continue their backward movement next day it was impossible to transport the dead body further captain yates ordered the preparations made for entering the camp that night but knowing that the indians would thoroughly search the deserted campground almost before the troops should get out of sight and would be quick with their watchful eyes to detect a grave and if successful in discovering it would unearth the body in order to obtain the scalp directions were given to prepare the grave after nightfall and the spot selected would have baffled the eye of any one but that of an indian the grave was dug under the picket line to which the seventy or eighty horses of the troops would be tethered during the night so that their constant tramping and pawing could be completely covered up and obliterate all traces of the grave containing the body of the dead trooper the following morning even those who had performed the sad rites of burial to their fallen comrade could scarcely have been able to indicate the exact location of the grave yet when we returned to that point a few weeks afterward it was discovered that the wily savages had found the grave unearthed the body and removed the scalp of their victim on the day following the internment early on the morning succeeding the fight in the sand hills general sully resumed his march toward fort dodge indians followed and harassing the movements of the troops until about two o'clock in the afternoon when apparently satisfied with their success in forcing the expedition back, thus relieving their villages and themselves from the danger which had threatened them, they fired their parting shots and rode off in triumph. That night, the troops camped on the Bluff Creek from which point General Sully proceeded to Fort Dodge on the Arkansas, leaving the main portion of the command in camp on Bluff Creek, where we shall see them again. End of chapter 11 Part 2